Oh, the power, the power, the wonder-working power of the cross. The cross that's meant to kill, that did kill Jesus, is our victory. Now, it's not just our victory for conversion. That, that is, in fact, how we're saved from sin and hell and death. We transfer our trust from our own record building of works, our own record of righteousness, and instead we transfer our trust to the person and work of Christ and his record of righteousness. And as we transfer trust, his righteousness is declared true of us. But it doesn't stop there. The cross begins there. But the cross has a lifelong work in our lives. The work of the cross doesn't stop with conversion. The work of the cross is how we get to heaven. And the work of the cross is how Christ is increasingly formed in us as we live the Christ-centered life. We're coming near the end of a study in Colossians, so turn to Colossians 3. The theme of this study is the Christ-centered life. In chapter 3, we run into Paul using a metaphor of clothing as an illustration. In the first part of chapter 3, we learn that as Christians, we are called to put sin to death. And Paul uses the metaphor of clothing. We're to put off all of the, the sin that the world lives in, that we once lived in. And we can put that off. We can put sin off. We can strip off those old sins because we're new creations in Christ. But the Christian life, and listen carefully here because I think so often we miss this, the Christian life is not primarily defined by what we're against. The reason I want us to hear that is because I feel the impression we give the world is that Christianity is primarily defined by what we're against. And it's just not so. Yes, we are to put off the old man. We are to put off that, that person that we were in Adam under sin's rule. And we're to strip all of the sin that, that at times bubbles up in us. We're to strip it off. But it doesn't end with stripping off. It ends with putting on. And so this morning's theme is the Christ-centered life by putting on the new self. The new self is the person that Paul talks about in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that is being renewed after the image of Christ day by day. We are to be clothed from the tip of our heads to the bottom of our feet with Christ. We are, we are to so wear Christ that we show Christ everywhere we walk, everywhere we go. Many of us are familiar with a golfer. His name is Tiger Woods, perhaps the greatest golfer who ever lived. For a long time, Tiger Woods was the Nike man. From the tip of his head, he had a Nike hat. 
He had Nike shirts. He had Nike vests. He had Nike slacks. He had Nike shoes. He used Nike clubs. For a while, he used Nike golf balls. There he is, the man dressed in Nike. He is clothed with Nike. Everywhere he went, he was endorsing Nike. Everywhere Tiger Woods went, people saw Nike. That's what Paul's talking about here in chapter 3. That we are to be so adorned with the character and heart of Christ that everywhere we go, people see not Nike, but Jesus. Now, this is just an okay illustration of what it means to be clothed with Christ and put on the new self. Where it falls is golf as an individual sport. And of course, sadly, many Christians think that Christianity is an individual thing, and it's not. Christianity is primarily corporate. That's how we grow. And only secondarily and peripherally is it individualistic. So we need to think of us being on Team Jesus, and we all put on the same uniform that reveals the church as a whole as being clothed with Christ. Now I wonder, where could we find a uniform of a team like basketball, baseball, volleyball? How about, I got it, college football. (laughs) The most classic uniform in history. Now, Seriously now, think about this. That's Penn State for those of you who are like on another universe. Okay, no names. Navy blue jerseys, white numbers, no names. There is no I in in team. Uh, the, The Penn State players see themselves as a unit There's nothing on their helmets except a blue line. There's no numbers that differentiate the players on their helmets. It's just another reminder. There's no I in team. They're all dressed in the same uniform, and the uniform doesn't even represent the individual. It represents the team. That's closer to the picture. Of course it is. That's closer to the picture of what God has for us in putting on the new self. Putting on the clothes of the gospel that everywhere we go endorses Jesus. So that intro, let's stand out of reverence for God's word. And let's see what these clothes look like. How do we dress as Team Jesus? Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then. See, there's the clothing metaphor. Put on. You've already put off sin and we're continued to put off sin, but it doesn't end with what we're against. It ends with what we're for. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Are you surprised at what God's Word emphasizes as to what we're to put on? What is to distinguish us as the church? May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. This is God's Word. He gave it to us because He loves us. And He wants us to be living walking endorsements of Jesus as we are in this world. Team Jesus. Let's pray. God, we ask that you'd open our eyes and unblock our ears. We ask that you'd soften our hearts and that you would move in our wills. And God, that we would learn just what it looks like for us to put on the new self that is being renewed after the image of its creator. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So how do we dress from the top of our heads to the bottoms of our feet so that we endorse Jesus? Well, there's four ways. Four ways we're to dress. First of all, love as you have been loved. Look at verse 12. Put on then, but then before Paul even tells us what to put on, this is so typical Paul, which of course is so typical Holy Spirit, he wants us to be reminded yet again that everything we do as Christians flows out of who we are as Christians. Paul takes pains yet once again to remind us of our standing in Christ, of our status in Christ, of our position in Christ. And he wants to remind us before he tells us to do anything, before he tells us to put on anything, he reminds us, you are God's chosen people. He has sovereignly decided to set his love on you. You did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to move his heart toward you. God simply chose to place his love on you. You are dearly loved. And by God's choosing of us as the church, we are holy, set apart. Now what's interesting about this identity, about this position, about this status, about this standing, is Paul in effect is calling us the new Israel. Because Israel in the Old Testament was described just as Paul describes us in verse 12. They were God's chosen people. They were his treasured possession. They were his beloved people. And because of who we are as God's beloved, as we are loved by God, we are to love others as well. So, 
Paul clearly spells out what love looks like. What does it look like to put on love? Look at verse 12. We're to put on compassionate hearts. Christians are to be marked by compassion. Do you think the world sees us? Do you think that's one of the first words they think of when they think about the church of Jesus? Do they think people who are compassionate, people who are filled with tender-hearted mercy, people that are filled with pity in the best sense of the word, not self-righteous, condescending pity, but, but true compassion. God treats us that way. So we're to love as we've been loved. Kindness. Kindness is a readiness to bring generous help and aid to those in need. Does the world experience us that way? As a group of people that are always ready to bring generous help and aid to those in need? Humility. One of the key elements of Christ in Philippians 2. Humility means that we actually count other people as being more important than ourselves. I mean, how secure in Christ as a child of God do you need to be to consider other people more important than yourself? See, this is why it takes loving as we've been loved. Because only when we're secure in God's love can we forget about ourselves and start thinking of other people as more important than us. Humility also involves considering other people's interests above our own. I wonder, does the world experience that way? Or does the world see us all demanding our rights like everybody else is? Humility. Meekness. Meekness is is strength that is being used to try to relieve the sufferings of others. Meekness is strength that cares for the weary and the weak and the lonely. Patience. Putting on patient means that that we suffer long with people who at times are absolutely exasperating. That's what the patience is. So you, you see what we're to put on is actually a heart of love. That's the defining characteristic of the Christian. Jesus said, all people will know you're my disciples by what? Love. Nothing else you want to focus on fits in that blank. There's only one blank, and the only thing that fits in that blank is love. All the people will know we are Christians by our love for one another. So Paul repeats himself in verse 14. Above everything else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Look, we can have discussions about ethics, morals, behaviors all day long. 
But nothing, but nothing trumps love. That is what God is most passionate about us putting on as believers. Love. Love as you have been loved. Think about putting on love in the morning when you get dressed. Oh God, let me put on love. Secondly, not only love as we've been loved, but forgive as you've been forgiven. The uh, church has been called a house of prayer. Well, here Paul calls the church a house of forgiveness. Verse 13 is actually the application of the last word in verse 12, which is patience. We put on patience. Verse 13 begins with bearing with one another. Now, it's not necessarily talking about sin here. It's talking about annoyances. It's, it's talking about someone that you just find quirky. It's talking about someone that they're not in sin, but they just annoy the living daylights out of you. I don't know any people like that, but apparently there are some people like that. And, and Paul says, bear with one another. Put up with it. The, the disciples were a bunch of knuckleheads. And Jesus says, actually in the gospel, he uses the same word, how long do I have to put up with you? Now, he wasn't doing it in a way that was shaming them. He, he was simply saying, I'm not going to run from you. I'm not going to reject you. I'm going to run towards you. But oy vey, guys. And, and we see the same thing in our own lives. And Jesus says that we're to bear with one another by thinking about how God bears up with us. Oh, and by the way, if you think some people are annoying, there are people that think you're annoying. I mean, let's be honest, right? And, and so as other people bear with us and as God ultimately bears with us, we are to bear with others. We're to put up with faults. We're to put up with weaknesses. We're to put up with quirks and idiosyncrasies. We're to we're to basically try to overlook anything that's not clearly sinful. Can you put that on? But then Paul goes on to say, even if there is sin, put on forgiveness as you have been forgiven. Look at verse 13 again. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Forgive the person who offends you. Look, we're sinful relational beings. We are either intentionally or unintentionally going to offend each other. From the husband and wife, parent-child relationship in the home, to the workplace, to the church, we are going to offend each other. And what Paul says is, as you have been forgiven, forgive. Now, there's a lot of nonsense out there about forgiveness. Like someone's got to be repentant. They got to ask for it. That's not true. There may be consequences in another person's life. Consequences that could come from their sin, from wronging me, from wronging you. Consequences that would come from the church for them not being repentant. But the person's attitude has nothing to do with whether or not you forgive them. 
Jesus says, I forgave you, so you must forgive one another. Now, it's not talking about you being a fool and exposing yourself to abuse. It's not talking about that. There may be changes that need to be made in the relationship. But one thing that must take place is you and I must forgive. As a matter of fact, Jesus, after teaching on the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, says, if you don't forgive one another, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. It's like, ooh, that sounds like performance. No, it's actually diagnostic. What Jesus is saying there is the power of grace and the knowledge of God's forgiveness of you is so supernatural that it is unthinkable that somebody with a new heart would refuse to forgive a Christian who has wronged them. Let that sink in. It is unthinkable to Jesus that a person who has been forgiven would refuse to forgive a brother or sister in Christ. Verse 13, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must must. Peter one day thought that he was going to be really godly and really impress Jesus. And, and there were customs about how many times you were to forgive somebody. And they keep doing it and you keep forgiving them. And so Peter doubled it and added one. And he said, seven times? And he's thinking... <laughs> Jesus is going to be so impressed. And Jesus looks at him and says, No, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And of course, Jesus wasn't even being literal. He wasn't saying 490. He's saying, As often as you are sinned against, you are to forgive. Now, please hear me. There's a difference between your heart extending forgiveness and recognizing that because somebody is constantly sinning against you, there may not be need to be a change in the relationship. We're talking about a forgiveness that flows from your heart. That because Jesus has forgiven you, you're willing to forgive another. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Love as you've been loved. Thirdly, encourage as you have been encouraged. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. It is so encouraging for people to live in peace with each other. It's so encouraging for people to live in unity with one another. It's so encouraging to not live in constant tension with each other. So Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. By the way, it may be taught elsewhere, but I'm not even going to get into whether it is or not. 
But this whole idea in personal decision-making that, well, I really had a peace about it, so that's what I decided. Or I just didn't have any peace, and I'm supposed to let the peace of God be the umpire. This has nothing to do with personal decision-making, right? This verse right here has absolutely nothing to do with you making decisions on what you think the will of God might be for your life in particular ways. Notice it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Paul's talking about peace in the church. He's talking about unity in the church. And he's saying the umpire, that's what it means, rule, the umpire or the referee of everything in the church is the peace of the church, the unity of the church. We are not to create division. Now, if, if it's a matter of grave character, if it's a matter of grave heresy or theological error, yes, we deal with that. But Paul's talking about these petty things that we often allow to get in the way of peace in our relationships. See, what happens when you think Jesus has called you to fight everything? There's never peace in a church. I think one of the things that breaks God's heart more than anything else, something, thankfully, that we have been spared from at Oak Mountain, is a church split. And I don't think there... I don't think there may be any worse of a witness to the world than a church split. And I doubt there's a worse witness in public forums, social media, than Christians that are fighting and not living in peace. We were indeed called in one body to live in peace. Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with everybody. Folks, not every issue of our day is a hill to die on. Not every issue of our day is something to get so heated and worked up over that it creates a lack of peace among Christians. As a matter of fact, I would tell you there are very few things that were to get that worked up over. The things that matter are the majors. Jesus is God. Man is is broken and sinful. The only way to eternal life is through the shed blood and obedient life of Jesus Christ. Now, the the beauty of, of having a denomination is we can agree on all kinds of things that other Christians don't agree on. So there should even be more peace in a denomination like ours. But how do we pass the peace? How do we spread the peace? 
Well, we already said that peace is to be the umpire. Okay, every conversation, we're to allow peace to be the referee. Then, he says, we're to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. How do we do that? You might be surprised. Jason won't be surprised. Y'all may be surprised. The way we teach and admonish one another so that there's peace in the church is by singing. When we sing in worship, it has nothing to do with whether you think you can carry a tune in a bucket. It has nothing to do with whether you feel like you personally get anything out of it or your preferences. It has everything to do with we are thanking God, which transforms our hearts. And as we thank God, we become more aware of how He loves us so that we can love others. We become more aware of how He forgives us so we can forgive others. We become more aware of the peace that Jesus has brought between us and God so that we can be peacemakers as well. But we're also proclaiming the beauty of the gospel to each other as we worship. As a matter of fact, in verse 16 it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Notice it doesn't say the word of God. So it's actually not talking particularly about the Bible. It's saying, let the word of Christ, which is very unique, the word of Christ is the message of the gospel. Let a gospel-centeredness and a grace-drivenness dwell richly in the congregation. That's what it means to encourage as we've been encouraged. And we are to sing forth the truths of the gospel in corporate gathered worship so that as we sing, we're not just singing to God and we're not just singing for ourselves. We are proclaiming the good news in the sanctuary to other Christians so that they might be encouraged. Encourage as you've been encouraged. Love as you've been loved. Forgive as you've been forgiven. And then lastly, serve as you have been served. Look at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, he tells us he came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And then he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and so I am. And as I have washed your feet, so you must wash one another's feet. I tell you, there are few things more humbling than washing someone's feet, but the one thing I can think of that's more humbling than washing somebody's feet is have somebody wash your own. I've had people wash my feet, and it is very humbling. But it creates in you a desire to serve as we've been served. Jesus doesn't serve us because we're deserving. He serves us because he's a servant. And we don't serve in the church because other people are deserving. We serve because Jesus has called us to serve. If the world saw Christians serving one another, we would see our witness multiply 
greatly if the world saw us loving each other as we've been loved. If the world saw us forgiving each other as we've been forgiven. If the world saw us encouraging one another in the peace of God, in the good news of the gospel message, our witness would multiply. To do it in the name of the Lord Jesus means by His power and grace. We can't do any of these on our own. We can't love as we've been loved. Who can love like Jesus? We can't do it. Apart from His grace, apart from His Spirit, apart from the ongoing work of the cross in our lives that enables us to put off self-centeredness, to put off hatred, to put off self-righteousness, and to put on love. None of us forgives if we've been forgiven. We need Jesus to be at work in our lives. How does God work more forgiveness? Usually by making us aware of how much forgiveness we need. In experiencing the forgiveness, we're reminded to extend it. And the same thing with encouragement and service. You know, three times in this text, it's a brief text, but we're called to thanksgiving. Verse 15, give thanks. Verse 16, give thanks. Verse 17, give thanks. As we give thanks, we are reminded. What are we giving thanks for? The gospel, the love of God, the work of the cross, a changed life. As we give thanks, our lives become more like Christ. You know, there's uh, an immune system in our bodies that fights off disease, that fights off infection. And the immune system, when it's working properly, is a beautiful thing. But sometimes the immune system goes haywire. And the body actually starts attacking itself. Rather than attacking the enemy, the body starts attacking itself. Rather than attacking an infection, the the body starts attacking itself. This is called an autoimmune disease. God wants to clear up every ounce and shred of autoimmune disease from his church. He wants us to love as we've been loved, He wants us to forgive as we've been forgiven. He wants us to encourage in peace and grace through song as we've been encouraged. And he wants us to serve as we've been served. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, when we talk about communion, it's not just an opportunity to experience supernatural communion with God. It is also acknowledging that we are supernaturally, really, and truly, And spiritually, we are united to each other if we know Christ because we are united to Him. And communion is just as much about us acknowledging all these things that Paul wants us to put on. Isn't it interesting now that you've you've done the, the chapter? Isn't it interesting that of all the things that we're called to put on, Paul focused on loving, forgiving relationships 
that brings service and encouragement to the body of Christ. That's what he cares about. He cares about other things. I get it. We're going to talk about some of those next week. But for right now, he cares about how we treat each other. And it's first. First. 